As Joe Biden prepares to announce his vice presidential pick, a group of influential Democratic women activists send out a warning to the media. We will be watching you. In a letter sent to network executives, newspaper editors, and others, the group wants to put them on notice that coverage of Biden's running mate that plays into racial or sexist tropes, that the candidate is too ambitious or not likable or is too emotional, is unacceptable. We will call out those who we believe take our country backwards with sexist and or racist coverage, the activists wrote. We'll talk to one of the signers of that letter, Elise Hogue, president of the pro-choice group NARAL, and we'll talk to Kim Whaley, a law professor and author of a new book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, about the truly nightmare scenarios for this year's election on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So a lot to talk about on this show, but I I think we just got to start out with the reports this weekend that President Trump asked the governor of South Dakota to uh, consider putting him on Mount Rushmore. Something I'm sure a lot of our listeners have been um, panting for for some time. And Trump's response on Twitter, which came on Monday, this is fake news by the failing New York Times and bad ratings at CNN. Never suggested it, although based on all the many things accomplished during the first three and a half years, perhaps more than any other presidency, sounds like a good idea to me, exclamation point. Well, you know, back in 2018, when he met with uh, Christy Noam, who was the then a, a representative from South Dakota serving in the Congress, she recounts the story. Uh, she is now governor, and she recounts the story that uh, Trump said to her that uh, it was his dream to be on Mount Rushmore. And her reaction was to chuckle because she thought he was joking. Well, he was stone-faced. I guess <laughs> yeah. stone-faced, like, uh, like Mount stone Rushmore face, itself. Uh, so to speak. Right, exactly. <laughs> so to speak. Yes. He was not joking, according to her, and has brought it up again, and now claims uh, that he was joking. But, you know, yeah, what can you say? You know, he's all opposed to people tearing down statues that uh, pay tribute to our uh, racist history, but he's all for putting his own image on Mount Rushmore for eternity. What about uh, Stone Mountain in Georgia with all those Confederate heroes? Maybe that's where he uh, belongs. I should point out for our listeners, since this is a podcast, they probably don't know that we are always stone-faced on this show and uh, Uh, we'll continue to be. Stone-faced or (laughs) stone? All right, Clydman, let's Let's uh, not get too personal here. Um, uh, We've got two really uh, good guests uh, to talk about some really important issues. Uh, Elise Hogue, who is one of the signers of this letter I referred to in our introduction, and also uh, author of an uh, important new book.
book about the battle over reproductive rights. And uh, Kim Whaley, who we've had on before, a law professor who's got a lot to say about what a total disaster this year's election could be. So let's get right to it. We now have with us Elise Hoag, the president of NARAL and the author of the new book, The Lie That Binds. Uh, Elise, welcome to Skullduggery. I have always wanted to be in Skullduggery, and here I am. Thank you for having me, Michael. Well, we were, you know, we got lots to talk about, including your book, but I want to start out with the letter that you and a lot of prominent Democratic women activists just sent out to us in the news media. We have her back warning us not to engage in inappropriate coverage of Joe Biden's running mate. Tell us what concerns you have that prompted you to sign this letter. Absolutely. I mean, I always say, fool me once, uh, shame on me, fool me a dozen times. Uh, you know, sorry, the other way around, fool me once, shame on you, fool me a dozen times, shame on me. Look, I mean, I, I think I, like everyone, sort of expected 2016 to be coverage of credentials and not attacks that were grounded in gender stereotypes. And we saw the opposite, and it was called out. And then we saw some of that pervasiveness through the 2020 primary, and we're certainly see it rearing its ugly head through the selection process of the VP. So we really just want to actually take a more, much more proactive role in making sure, look, you know, we, we are all grounded in a misogynistic culture. Actually, the book goes into that. It goes into how the right has been effective in fomenting deeply seated cultural attitudes about both race and gender in order to undermine progressive power over the long haul. And we can't afford it this time around. We know that 2020, we should actually celebrate having a woman on the ticket, not just for social progress, but because we know women make the difference in these elections. And yet we have to guard against the kind of right wing narrative that gets too often sort of seeps into the mainstream media and depresses that enthusiasm. I just want to um, bore in a little bit here on the media's responsibility, exactly what you're, you're saying, because I think this was, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the catalyst for this was what Chris Dodd, who's uh, leading up the vice presidential search for Joe Biden, was reported to have said, and no one has disputed that, by the way, that he referred to uh, Kamala Harris as ambitious. She wasn't contrite after having gone after Joe Biden during the uh, one of the uh, earlier debates. But is what you're saying that that the media sort of writ large doesn't challenge those kinds of statements, just kind of spreads them without pushing back at all? What exactly is your beef, for lack of a better word, with the media in terms of propagating these uh, gender stereotypes? Yeah, I mean, I, Dan, I think it is what we have seen and actually documented again for decades as the right wing has a particular grasp on how to foment some like really deep stuff we have about race and gender, as well as craft narrative that's really smart about how they manipulate emotion and that there's not quite the level of scrutiny and checks and balances that we'd like to see in the mainstream media 
actually having enough self-awareness not to just carry those narratives full full bore. In this case, you're actually talking about Chris Dodd. This is misogyny and race, let me be clear, is not a partisan issue. It is an American issue. It is the fact that one side actually attempts to leverage for political benefit existing cultural attitudes about women or people of color. And the other side is less aware of how that is happening. And therefore, the media can get caught up in carrying tropes unconsciously, in my opinion, most of the time, that are really right. crafted by the right wing to undermine our... Uh, but but I guess, yeah, I guess what I want to ask you is just very specifically to understand what you think the media ought to do in situations where you know, high profile uh, public officials engage in, you know, use this kind of language. Should we be uh, not quoting, using the anecdote that, you know, quotes Chris Dodd, uh, or should we be saying, you know, parenthetically, you know, in a in a common gender-based trope? I mean, what, what should we do? I think context is king. Absolutely. I am not personally suggesting you shouldn't cover that, right? Like, I actually think a robust conversation about it is, is important. I do think context is critical. I actually just talked to another reporter about this, that, um, you know, we're anticipating, because we document this throughout the history of the right, that they will also deploy white women to attack the VP candidate, right? We can't pretend like this is the first time they've done this. Phyllis Schlafly carried the water for the right. You know, there is, Kellyanne Conway didn't spring forth fully formed like Athena from Trump's brain, right? Like she got her start on her new Gingrich and she has put a study to how to manipulate voters' opinions about women. And so that context is really, really important in covering this. And again, nobody's immune from it. That's not what we're arguing. This was a Democratic ex-senator and advisor to Biden who carried forward that trope. But I do think there is an opportunity for the media to say this has historically been used in a way that has attacked women in a way that is not the same Mm -hmm. as it has been used to attack. Was it historically used against Sarah Palin in 2008? You know, it's funny, Sam did it. Sam Stein did a story about that today, right? I don't know if you saw it, but I'm quoted in it. And I am no Palin fan. Nobody can ever accuse me of being a Palin fan. And I think Palin is a Schlafly character in that she used her own knowledge about race and, and misogyny to prop up the right wing within the GOP. And at the same time, I do think she was held to a different standard than Trump. Now, we can argue lots of things that Trump was running for president, she was vice president, but I do think that there, if you look at what um, Sam reports on today and, and some of the tropes that were used against Palin, even by Democrats, right? They were gendered. And I don't think we advance the conversation about gender equity unless we apply it unilaterally, as you're suggesting, Michael, where we create analysis around Palin and where Dan is suggesting even when it comes from Democrats. Well, let me, can I get a little, let's be granular here. I mean, Biden is supposed to make the announcement this week. All coverage suggests it's down to a handful of candidates, Kamala Harris, Susan Rice, possibly Senator Duckworth. What is, in your view, appropriate to write in digging into who this this vice presidential candidate is and what would cross the line? Be particular about the kinds of coverage you're talking about that you think 
you are getting ready to call out if you see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think any examination of their record is not only acceptable, it's actually mandatory and necessary. Otherwise, we would be tilting too far in the other direction, right? Nobody is suggesting that whoever the vice presidential candidate is gets a pass. We just, you know, we just usher her in because this is this is a moment, right? But I think there have been resource guides that we participated with one on one with ultraviolet that points out specific use of language, whether it's ambitious or other gendered traits that are not uh, proportionally applied. And so I think to the extent that we can actually, you know, use those resource guides as a way to make sure that we are keeping the focus really tight on the attributes that are critical to her ability to govern, I think we're going to be doing great. And by the way, I think we are going to be doing great. I think the shortlist is a phenomenal list of women. I think they can stand up and and all of them are fighters, right? So I think when we do see attacks launched by whoever it is, Kellyanne or Laura Ingram or whatever you know woman they deploy, because I don't think it fits with Mike Pence's brand to actually go out and attack the VP the way we would expect with a man, that you know she will be able to hold her own. And so I think that that's crucially important. The other thing I would say is, you know, those of us who are involved in this effort, we are tracking what comes over the transom from the right wing. I think the origin of narratives is really important in understanding the motivation and the acceptability of carrying them forward. That doesn't mean that people from all across the partisan spectrum don't sometimes unearth hard facts and information that are required for effective media coverage, but it does mean that when we're looking at a concerted and coordinated attack around character or characteristics that is emanating from elements of the right wing, that it deserves a second look before we just pick it up and parroted. And so, you know, part of, I think, our role, having studied this, is to say, hey, you guys, hey, Mike, hey, Dan, hey, Chuck, hey, whoever, look at the origin of this, look at the context of this again, and think about how you want to cover it. So what are you doing beyond sending out this this letter, which puts us all on warning? But are you going to go into newsrooms and, you know, talk to editors? Are you going to take this further? Or was the feeling that, uh, that you know, this, this would be enough for now? You know, I think what we've learned from 2016 is that we want to inoculate tropes that are coming from the right wing that... Um, again, deserve more scrutiny before they spread to mainstream media and that we do have relationships that would allow us to say, hey, red flag, give this another look before you pick it up. I think that there is a crowd response. I think we've already seen it so much more, right? You get the LA Times writing about the VP stakes being the bachelorette. You get a lot of reaction to that on Twitter because we are more coordinated in looking for this stuff and responding to it. And then I think that for us, and I can just speak for us because we're, you know, 2.5 million members strong, we have actually been engaged in member training. We had a huge member training this weekend that involved actually spotting gendered stereotypes, also disinformation, which sometimes overlap, but are not exactly the same. Because one of the things we know that is that especially for women voters, actually hearing from people within your own social networks is crucial in discerning fact from fiction and also creating the kinds of conditions where you sort of know what to believe. So our members are deputized to do that within their own social networks. It's been an ongoing training. 
Hey, Elise, uh, Dana Milbank uh, recently wrote a column about Susan Rice talking about uh, how she sometimes cursed out people she was not uh, pleased with, raising questions about her temperament. Why would Biden pick a human lightning rod as VP was the headline. Is that an example of the kind of coverage you're talking about? Um, you know, if, uh, thank you for pointing it out. I actually have not seen that article specifically, um, which means that the sort of general consensus of white blood cells that rise up did not, you know, do so in that case. Um, look, if Susan Rice is a cursor and that's being covered, as long as we're actually calling out the fact that I know a lot of male politicians and other women that curse and it's being evaluated the same big deal. Like, I don't actually think that is this, the kind of thing that as long as it's contextualized should be. I, I mean, do I care if she curses? I don't. Nobody I know does. But if that's newsworthy to you guys, as long as you're actually making the comparison of other people that do the same thing, go for it. <laughs> so Elise, so you earlier in the conversation, you drew a parallel between what you're doing now in terms of uh, the media's propagating of these tropes and, and uh, you call them right-wing narratives and the book that you've written. So so tell us the role of narrative and the right-wing spreading those narratives in the issue of, of abortion um, and, and choice. Uh, t- tell us essentially what your thesis is. Yeah, I mean, the title kind of says it all. I think that we were looking at a mountain of research that proved that the central lie for organizing the radical right was the idea that they were ever driven, these movement architects were ever driven by a concern, moral or otherwise, for outcomes of individual pregnancies. Nothing could be further from the truth. What they actually were mobilized to public um, and political engagement around originally was fighting school desegregation and voting, invoking religious liberty to keep their kids from going to school with black kids. But ultimately, they were at a choice point because the Civil Rights Act became law. That doesn't mean we solved structural racism in the schools, but it means that they had exhausted all legal options. They had defeated the ERA with Phyllis Schlafly at the forefront, which was not at all fought on grounds of abortion. And five years after Roe, they were casting about for another issue. And what they found then was despite the fact that the majority of Americans pre-Roe, post-Roe, and currently today believe in legal access to abortion, that these underlying cultural issues around women, sex, race, would actually prevent the majority from engaging in the conversation. And therefore, abortion made a great Trojan horse for them to advance an agenda that actually was pretty hostile to all forms of social progress that were underway in the 70s, and that they built a whole architecture around it. They built a whole disinformation campaign, and they happened to be right. Like, they made this excellent gamble. There's a reason the Federalist Society made hostility to Roe their litmus test for aspiring legal minds and justices because it turned out that it was an excellent proxy for hostility to other forms of social and economic justice. And the same proved true in a 2019 poll done by Tressa Undum. We presume, because we've allowed them to write their own history, that antipathy towards abortion maps best onto religiosity. Not at all true. People of all faiths, regardless of their own personal opinions, which is important because this includes a lot of people who self-identify as pro-life and say, I would never do this, um, believe that the government should not be 
involved in this business. But at the same time, what the 2019 poll found is in an age of Trump, particularly your willingness to say, I don't want women to have control over their own bodies was an excellent proxy for believing that you were going to be hostile to other forms of gender and racial equity. And that is sort of the crux of what we found is that people are like, how could this guy, this thrice married reality TV show host, enjoy all the support of these evangelical leaders who have not only backed him, right, um, to become a credible candidate, but have covered for him in some of his most egregious moments, whether it's family separation or post-Charlottesville, um, and the answer is because the underlying ideology was always aligned. It was always aligned because it was about maintaining power and control for this small group of people in a changing world. In your book, you write a lot about Paul Weyrich as a key figure. Tell us uh, why he was so important in this process. Yeah, I think um, Weyrich is one of the least known and most influential characters of the modern Republican Party. He was not only sort of a visionary as it came to building this movement and cementing what he called the, he self-identified as a dominionist, which means he believed God gave white Christian men authority over all systems, certainly the family system, but also the economic, social, and political systems. And he was really smart about his own intuitive understanding of what would cause people to recoil from the conversation. So, you know, he had a broad agenda. He not only built the infrastructure with a lot of money from the Coors family, who we know has roots in Nazism and, and white supremacy, heritage, some of the things we just take as mainstays and staples of the modern day Republican movement, heritage, Federalist, ALEC, American Legislative Exchange Council, but also what we think of as pro-life or what we call anti-choice infrastructure, Americans United for Life, um, that has provided legislative but also political power for extreme right candidates and created shock troops for Trump actually in 2016 when the GOP was losing faith in his ability to carry the ticket and they move resources down ballot. Weyrich was actually the antecedent to all of that. The fascinating thing about Weyrich, which we use as a curtain raiser on the book, is he got really frustrated with the movement and it was a product of his own success. They built so much propaganda and created so much mis and disinformation around abortion that they converted entire generations to believe that abortion was the ultimate evil. And there is documentation of him sitting at a you know, right-wing conservative conference in the 90s being like, you people, this was never all about abortion. We've become too focused on abortion. We need to get back out there and actually remind people that this was about concentrating control in the hands of people who deserve it. And there is this famous Weyrich quote that we have the, the original audio from that we use in our own podcast by the same name, The Lie That Binds, um, that actually talks about the fact he doesn't think everyone should be able to vote. He actually believes that a small subset of educated, predominantly men should be able to vote because it's careless, because you have all of these uninformed masses in his mind making decisions, which is obviously antithetical to the popular democracy we all believe we live in, but also a powerful proxy for where the GOP is now. 
at least let's talk about the Democrats and, and in particular the standard bearer for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, who has, at least if you believe the polls right now, better, a better than 50 percent chance of becoming president. His views have evolved on abortion, as you know, personally against it. He supported the Hyde Amendment, which banned federal funding of abortion. He's withdrawn his support of the Hyde Amendment. Is there any daylight uh, between Joe Biden and at, at this point and people who, who you believe have the right views on, um, on the choice issue? You know, I do think Joe Biden has evolved a lot, and I think he's surrounded himself by with people who actually understand the intersections of oppression, racial and gender with also, you know, that the use of reproductive oppression as a means of social order. Um, yes, we will almost certainly debate around the edges. There is no question, right? And as we did with the Obama administration, as we have done with every um, administration, but I think the purpose of us putting this narrative out is to actually remind Democrats as much as everyone that in order to not just ethically serve the people that we say we serve as progressives who are disproportionately women, disproportionately people of color who have less access to services, including but not exclusively abortion services, right? We strategically, we cannot create the conditions that the right wanted, which is the idea that this abortion debate is a sideshow. It is so central to everything they have built over the last 45 decades that Democrats need to understand the analysis and take it head on. The reality is that the Republican Party is so extreme at this point, only 25% of self-identified Republicans agree with their own party's position on the issue of abortion access, fewer on contraception, and certainly some, not all, are frustrated with the hypocrisy of restricting access to abortion and yet not helping working moms with the things they need to take care of their kids. The reality is when we don't actually treat this as the central issue at, that it is, we let them off the hook on so many things that are central at, to our ability to win and create a governing like coalition, but also that are just central to who we are as a country right now, conversations about racial and gender justice, but also about democracy. Because one of the things we talk about with Wyrick, carried on by many people, now McConnell, is that when you don't have popular opinion on your side, you resort to things that undermine democracy, just as Wyrick intended, in order to maintain control. So you can't actually talk about voter suppression, gerrymandering, court capture, all of which are crucially important without understanding how the right got there using abortion as this Trojan horse, understanding that they never had popular support on it. So, Elise, you know, the premise of your book is that uh, the right wing, exemplified by people like Wyrick, used the abortion issue, as you say, a Trojan horse, to advance an agenda that was hostile to racial and gender equality. So I want to ask you about somebody who's not mentioned in your book, Mildred Jefferson. She was the first African-American to graduate from Harvard Medical School. She was the first surgeon at uh, Boston 
Boston University Hospital, and she went on to become the president of the National Right to Life Committee. And I bring her up because it strikes me that, you know, there she is an example of how people on all sides of all races, all colors, all men and women can legitimately have different views on this issue. And that, you know, sometimes if we paint the brush, you know, too broad, we're pretending they're just tokens, they're just being used by others when they are real people with real views that just happen happen to be different than yours. Certainly. And, you know, I don't think Mildred is alone. I mean, we are looking at an African-American community for whom reproductive oppression and the willingness to separate families goes centuries before the Trump administration, right? Like these are very, very personal issues. And there's no question that Mildred respectfully, is not representative of the majority of Americans or the majority of African Americans in this country. That does not mean she's not entitled to her perspective, but it does bear in mind that we can't actually take her as representative when all of the polling shows the opposite. When you get down to the fundamental question of who decides, does the government or a politician decide, or do you with your family and whoever you trust, clergy or otherwise, make that decision within your own context. And on that, the consensus is clear. And so I worry about the fact that people will trot Mildred or anyone else out, right? Like we saw this with Herman Cain, may he rest in peace as a like, well, there are two sides of this. Certainly, there are a million sides of everything, but that doesn't negate our ability to actually look at the polling on the operative question of the government's position on this issue, as well as other issues, and make informed conclusions about what popular opinion is. Elise, what we do know is that ultimately the courts will decide, the Supreme Court will decide this issue. And one thing that you know I've, I've noticed, and people who uh, support choice and people who are like yourself, advocating very publicly on this issue, don't want to invest too much hope in uh, John Robert, in Chief Justice John Roberts. And I guess I, I'm interested, particularly after this latest term in which he sided with the liberals a number of times. You know, he is known to be an institutionalist who believes that uh, when law is really settled, that to overturn it can have a very detrimental impact. I know you're not going to say that you think he's going to be a vote to uphold Roe versus Wade, but how are you thinking about Chief Justice Roberts right now on this issue? And would it shock you if he voted to uphold Roe versus Wade? You know, I, look, our founding fathers invested the courts without uh, the power of the purse or the sword, right? What they have is the legit their own legitimacy in the eyes of public opinion. And I think Chief Justice Roberts understands that better than anyone. And you know, I think that a good mentor of mine once said that the progressives see the courts as a pathway to justice. The right has always seen the courts as a pathway to power. And I think that's why we invested so much energy in researching and writing about the role of the courts and the Federalist Society in the book itself, because it's very clear that one side was kind of hands off and the other side was not. That being said, I am pleased with Robert's decision on the Louisiana case. It would have been horrifying if he had not actually cited 
the way he did because we're talking, this was not a case about Roe. This was actually a case about clinic regulations that had been decided in 2016. We're not talking about decades old precedent. We're talking about four-year-old precedent. It was the identical case. And Roberts had actually decided in the minority in 2016 against the clinics, right? But as you note, in this case, he said, even though I think the underlying law is wrong, I will stand with the fact that we just saw this specific case four years ago. But if you have a close read on that decision, he's like, bring me another case that's a shade to this side or a shade to that side, all bets are off. So we take him at his word, right? We do. And we think it's really important to stay vigilant, to stay organized. We think that the courts do reflect evolving sentiment as long as they are aware of it and held to account. I think we do believe that the Constitution and its interpretation is a living, breathing process. Otherwise, this country would look very, very different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than it did when it was written. And so that's our job, right? That's our job to stay on top of it. There are a dozen cases wending its way through the court. I don't think we're taking anything for granted. He decided the opposite in the contraception case that came shortly thereafter, didn't get as much press. So I think anything is possible. And our job is to create the container in which the court understands their own legitimacy in the eyes of the public, because there is real public opinion on this. Let's talk about the stakes in this election for reproductive rights, because uh, given the uh, age and the health of Justice Ginsburg, it's pretty clear that the next president is likely to get a pick on the Supreme Court to replace her at some point. And it seems to me that from your perspective at NARAL, this could not be a bigger Supreme Court pick in perhaps, certainly since Roe versus Wade uh, was, uh, came down in 1973. Tell us how you see the stakes in the election and what NARAL and your various affiliated outfits, your PAC and your 501c4 are doing to um, make sure the election comes out in the way you want it to come out. Absolutely. Well, let me start with the fact that there is good news. In 2018, right after the Kavanaugh confirmation, which I'm sure you guys are aware we fought bitterly, um, we certainly lost on the vote count, thanks to Susan Collins, another white woman um, who held the water for her caucus. But I don't think we lost, because one of the things that the 2018 election showed through polling is that for the first time in recorded history, more voters voting Democratic listed the Supreme Court as one of the top reasons for their vote than voters voting Republican. But you didn't pick up votes in the Senate where it counts for Supreme Court votes. Yeah, you lost. Seeing a sea change in awareness among voters, and I think that's crucially important, right? And so absolutely, I think we have a few things going on. I'm very proud to be a part of the Supreme Court Voter Project, which works through our C3 and our C4 to educate voters about the stakes with the Supreme Court. The right has always had this infrastructure in place. No doubt we are catching up, but we are catching up. Um, I think we are engaged deeply, deeply, deeply. In we started with about a half dozen Senate races. The map is expanding. We just had Jamie Harrison on a call last night with a thousand activists who then poured calls into South Carolina. Because guess what? South Carolina is in play, right? So we've got activists on the ground as well as 
communication to voters through a variety of means about the stakes of this election, and absolutely the court is a part of it. I'm very proud to have been the author and the filer of an amendment that was accepted to the DNC platform for the first time carrying language about court reform and the need to discuss court reform as Democrats, because with a quarter of the bench having been filled by Trump appointees, we cannot just win the next election if we are lucky enough to win the next election at the White House and the Senate level and be like, oh, we're good. Because as Dan pointed out, really, we're looking at the courts, so we need to get serious about court reform. We are pulling out all the stops, Michael. We've got a voter information project. We've got a project where we have worked diligently with our members to spot and combat disinformation in their own social networks, which we think is going to be crucial. We're participating in all the voting rights coalitions that are looking at the best way to protect voting in an age of COVID. And we're running the largest independent expenditure than we have in the history of the organization because we could not be taking this election more serious. How much money are you planning to, hoping to spend? About $32 million. $32 million, And is that through the PAC and the 501c4? Or how- and we have a super PAC for the first time in the history of the organization. It's called the Neural Freedom Fund. But there is also a 501c4. We do. We yeah. have a C3 so- that does our education, C4, right. PAC, and super PAC. Well, uh, we will want to stay in touch with you as the election proceeds and uh, see how you break down the uh, Senate races in another couple of months as we come down to the wire. But Elise, thanks for joining us. I have loved it. Thank you, Dan and Michael, for all you do. I appreciate the podcast and your work. Thanks so much, Elise. All right. We now have with us Kim Whaley, professor of law at the University of Baltimore and author of the new book, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why, and an overall expert on the Constitution and elections. Kim, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me, Mike. So timely book you have out, and especially timely, given all the questions everybody has about how this election is going to come off. There are a lot of us concerned that right now this is looking like a train wreck. What is your perspective? I agree. I think there are so many ways the train can go off the rail that I've come to believe the answer, the only answer, is massive, massive voter turnout because there will be so much disenfranchisement that we're going to need to have a mandate one way or the other that is so clear from a political media standpoint that the conversation moves towards what the new administration is or the next administration is going to do rather than the legitimacy of the election. Because massive turnout suggests to you that there's less of a chance of a close election if there's massive turnout, and then it'll be harder for one or the other candidate, we know we're talking about Donald Trump, to question the legitimacy of the outcome. He will question the legitimacy of the outcome. So I think that is going to be a given. And it's not even just the outcome. There'll be questions across the country because, of course, as you know, but not everyone understands, our voting system is not a national system. It's a state by state and sometimes county by county system. So this is going to be death by a thousand cuts or fewer. I mean, I think there are about 3,000 precincts across the country. So maybe that's not an exaggeration. 
And there will be an effort to call the election illegitimate. We're already seeing it in terms of attacking the validity of voting by mail, which is empirically irresponsible. We're already seeing it in terms of a shakeup at the Postal Service that has in one building in Minneapolis of low-income people ended up keeping mail coming, being from delivered for nine or 10 days right before the primaries. We're going to see shenanigans around the Postal Service. But I, I come to believe that if, if the margins are so big that the conversation will shift away from the boy who cried wolf and towards some real solutions um, to the many things that are making Americans suffer in unprecedented ways right now. But if margins are slim, I think we're in trouble. Yeah, I was going to say, does that suggest or imply that if there isn't a, a sizable victory, that there's just very little we can do at this point to mitigate the risk of all of these things that you're talking about? No, there are many things that we could do right now, but most of it comes down to the HEROES Act, which does contain significant amount of money amount of money for the states as well as the Postal Service and the Republicans. Um, that bill has been sitting for months now and Mitch McConnell won't move on it at all. So there are things that can be done. I don't think the states can do it without without a sufficient funding. Uh, I mean, people talk a lot about voter fraud and they talk about voter suppression. Voter suppression is a lot more real than voter fraud, which is not a serious problem in just in terms of the data. But a lot of the problems with elections have to do with the complexities of administering these massive undertakings of registering, identifying, and then counting votes. And in this pandemic, we will see in many states two electoral processes, not just the counting the votes in person, but also having a massive vote-by-mail organization that a lot of states just aren't used to doing. So just running that huge enterprise is complicated. It takes experience, it takes expertise, it takes money. And those three things are lacking in most states. So so we're just going to see it fall through the cracks by virtue of the logistics, I think. Kim, look, there has been the political debate for some time about voter fraud and disenfranchisement and all that. But what seems to me to be the biggest concern here is just the logistics of what you just mentioned, counting. And you go back to just what happened in the New York primary in June, when it was only last week, you know, what was it, three months later, almost three months later, that the results were certified because there were so many mail-in ballots and it took that long to count and there were so many challenges to those mail-in ballots and there are still challenges going on. I think one of the candidates is in court as we speak challenging the results of one of those primaries. I think it was Carolyn Maloney's and that's in New York State. You multiply that by all the counties and states in the country to me, it seems almost a nightmare scenario. Absolutely. Just in terms of those basics, you have to you have to count, you have to order the ballots on certain paper, right? A lot of machinery is really old and the parts have worn out and you can't even replace them. Um, a lot of this machinery is in the hands of third-party vendors. It's not even government entities that have control over them. We have a lower registration rates right now because of COVID. The motor voter law that Congress passed isn't functioning or hasn't functioned because uh, DMVs have been closed. We haven't seen big get-out-the-vote drives in public spaces. So we have those people that aren't on the on, uh registered yet. A lot of states, you have to ask for your mail-in ballot. You have to apply and then actually vote. So we just, logistically, there are a lot of problems. But I don't want to minimize voter suppression efforts. I mean, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s was a direct response to states getting cute 
and that's a technical legal term I use a lot, about the 13th Amendment and the other civil rights amendments that authorized African-American voting and just making it harder to get yourself registered and able to vote. And in 2013, the Supreme Court gutted a critical provision of the Voting Rights Act, sent it back to Congress. That is also legislation that's been on Mitch McConnell's desk since December. But because of that, there we're seeing a polling places close or not enough machinery or not enough people there. Or all of a sudden on, on that day, there's it's harder to get there because some certain streets are closed. I mean, these things do happen because we saw President Bush, for example, win the presidency for eight years and change the course of history based on 537 votes in a single state. So voting does matter. And the, this kind of cuteness at the margins without consequences can make an impact. And so that's what we mean by voter suppression. And it does tend to fall disproportionately on low income and people of color. Well, not exclusively, because I want to tell you my own experience. When I applied for a mail-in ballot in the District of Columbia to vote in my city council ward election, and I got the ballot, this was this year, the day after election day. So my vote was suppressed. There you go. Yeah. I mean, Stacey Abrams, in, she, you know, famously, one of the biggest issues historically in voter suppression was a Georgia gov- um, gubernatorial race. Her ballot came already sealed. So she had to go to the polls as well. Um, you'd think certain people would get their ballots and because they have such Wait. a large ballot. Uh, was this in her race when she was running against Brian Kemp? This was Cause I, in the primaries. Okay, I was going to say, because... There are high-profile people like our friend yeah. Mike Isikoff who weren't spared <laughs> this. And then you add, you know, the single mom with shift jobs and several buses she has to take and she has to take off work to get there. And when she gets there, she doesn't have the right ID. And there's a six, six hour line. And I mean, you know, not everyone has the access, uh, equal access to braving the polls on on voting day, especially in the pandemic. So let me ask you this, Kim, because I think unless there is a landslide, the scenario you talked about, it seems pretty obvious that we're not going to know the results of this election on election day and probably for days, if not weeks after the election. So explain to our listeners why that is necessarily a problem, because I think in a lot of countries, you don't always know the results immediately. And so I guess the question is, isn't this also about kind of setting expectations for voters out there that it's okay if we don't know the results uh, on the first day? It doesn't mean by definition that there's a problem with the election? Correct. I don't think we will because in certain states, again, it varies state by state, certain states don't even allow the counting of ballots until election day. So if you can't scan them all immediately through a machine in real time, you've got to open envelopes, match handwriting signatures or whatever the sort of auditing process is, that does take time. And as Mike indicated, we just saw that in New York, it will 100% take time. So people, regular people and people in the media need to just cool their heels and not call the election. I, I heard recently on um, New York Times Daily podcast, the president of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, say that he wouldn't rule out making clarifications on Twitter around calling elections. So so we, we will have to see some adjustments. That being said, I just did a piece that came out today in the Bulwark on the timing of counting these ballots. Congress has set a bunch of deadlines in, in law, and the electors are supposed to initially meet on December 14th. If there isn't a resolution of how the electoral votes will go, 
then they states can decide to cast their electoral votes in a different way. That decision needs to be made by December 8th. So you can imagine the politics here. Say you have a Republican-dominated state legislature, governor, secretary of state who manages the electoral process. They don't have um, a clear slate of electors by December 8th, so they just call it one way under a new law. That is technically, as far as I read the statute, doable, but then we would see lawsuits saying, wait a minute, that's unconstitutional, that violates this state law, that violates that federal law. Then the drop-dead date really would be January 6th, um, where Congress certifies the electoral votes. If that doesn't happen, if things are just kicked down the road until then, then it basically becomes a delegation vote in Congress That is, each state gets one representative, regardless of the number of members of the House the state has. Right now, there are more Republican states than Democratic states. So if the House doesn't shift, the Republicans in Congress could call the election for Trump based on that contingent election process, which has only been triggered three times in American history, twice for presidents and one for vice president. There's one other wrinkle, which is that if they can't actually seat a president under the Constitution on January 20th, then under the sort of succession law, the vice president would be the next in line and the Senate would be under the statute, the the entity to pick the vice president. So a president could pick a, the Senate could pick a vice president. It's a little easier to do that under the rules than to pick a president in the House. And that vice president, if it's a Republican dominated Senate, could be an interim president pending resolution of the actual presidency. <laughs> but the current president would, would have to be out under the Constitution. Yes, that, yeah. is, that is clear as a bell. January 20th, he would have to be out unless Congress, the House of Representatives, in a contested election declared him president, voted him president, notwithstanding the popular vote or the Electoral College vote at that point. And I think, you know, we could see... Uh, either side of the aisle from November 3rd all the way to January 20th, we could see serious uh, rioting in the streets. I think we've also been you know, desensitized to that over the past few months. So that's another yeah. concern amongst the electoral community as well. All right. So, Kim, clearly the state legislatures could play a key role here. And among these states controlled currently by Republicans— are Florida, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, key battleground states. If there's not, there, there's almost certainly going to be litigation in probably every state about this, right? I mean, there are these, already I think see, 140 or 160 lawsuits pending. The Republicans right. have a $20 million litigation war chest. The president has indicated there's going to be a lot of litigation. So that is already happening around changes to registration and voting to account for the pandemic. Um, right. In general, Republicans don't want the changes. Democrats want the changes. Democrats want access. Republicans do not. Right. So I should add North Carolina to that list as well. So play this out for us. If there are legal challenges and they're not resolved by the courts by early December, at what point can the legislatures decide who won the state, which electoral slate goes to the Electoral College? It looks like under federal law, 
the the safest deadline would be December 8th. And there was also a federal decision in connection with the Bush-Gore litigation in Florida that confirmed that December 8th or six days before the electors are supposed to meet and cast their votes, that would be the date for the alternative method. Because remember, the Constitution sets up the Electoral College, but it doesn't say how each state is supposed to decide what their electors are going to do. And we saw this year, the Supreme Court issued a decision that essentially said the states are the bosses of the electors. Even though the electors are regular people, they're not allowed to just do whatever they want. That was a Supreme Court decision this year. All but two states, Maine and Nebraska, do winner-take-all electoral votes in this moment. So if you have 51% of the vote go for Biden, 49 go for Trump, Trump would get or Biden would get 100% of the electoral votes. That's partly why we've seen popular votes not line up with the Electoral College, because it's not like 49% go to Trump and 51% go to Biden. It's winner take all. So back to Daniel's point, what we were talking about earlier, Dan's point, if there's a slim margin, if there's a slim margin, we're more likely to have problems. So the electoral, the states can decide, they can, the state legislature could meet or whatever the state law is on how the electors are called. And I don't have the research at my fingertips at that. They could decide on December 7th, for example, listen, this election's a hot mess. You know, we saw Puerto Rico this week. They literally didn't have ballots for people. They showed up and they didn't have the paper ballots. Or they, they don't have any votes in the electoral college, by the way. Right, but I'm just saying that's one example of who knows what will happen in the fall with this logistical nightmare. And they meet on December 7th and say, we're going to do our new voting system that says that the electoral college vote goes to whatever the legislature decides. So the, the nightmare scenario is the so-called blue shift, which is that Trump is actually, I mean, from the perspective of Democrats, that Trump is actually leading on Election Day. But once these mail-in ballots start coming in, it puts uh, Biden over the top. And and so I guess the question I want to ask you is, I mean, the reason we're having this whole conversation is because uh, we have a uh, president who has been unprecedented in the way he's talked about elections and voting, going back to 2016 when he talked about voter fraud. Now, when he's questioning the legitimacy of mail-in ballots, talking about even delaying the election. But what what are you concerned about Trump doing, not preemptively before the election, but what are you concerned about him doing after the election? Well, the other, I think, wrinkle in this election, of course, is the pandemic, that it's not just 2016. We have Russian interference, which is, you know, Blumenthal, Senator Blumenthal said it was, you know, shocking and recently very, we don't know what the Russians are doing. That's a whole nother wrinkle. But my concern is, okay, people don't get their ballots because of the postal service is just slow or they cease to actually function. I mentioned that in Minneapolis recently prior to a primary. The medium income in this in this building was $10,000 a year and they didn't get their ballots in time, right? So he has control over the postal service. He's just put a crony in charge of the postal service. People don't get their ballots. States, it varies whether the ballot is counted based on the postmark date or receipt date. So that you get cuteness with there, things are delayed, mail doesn't get there. So all those people. But what do you mean? What do you mean cuteness, Kim? Because if the state law says it can only be counted if it arrives by election day, that's the law. There's nothing cute about that. Well, the cuteness is someone controls that arrival process. That's my okay. point, right? So you know, it's like, oh, I got the text this morning 
for a two o'clock meeting, but I pretended by three o'clock that I only got the text right now, right? It's like, there's a, there's an exchange there that has a lot of power and that's mm -hmm. the president, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so you've got that whole thing with mail-in voting. Then you've got not a lot of expertise around matching the signatures, things like that. So a lot of opportunity to say, this doesn't match. I'm not, you know, how many handwriting experts? Matching the signature because the uh, electoral officials have on file documents with your signature, government documents, and that has to match the ballot. That depends on the state. But again, you know, most of these electoral processes are are managed by the secretary of state who often is a political person, right? So there are ways that, that ballots can be not counted um, and that, that's the cute word. It's not necessarily the law. It's somewhat subjective, mm -hmm. but it can make an impact in the election. So all of that happens. Then we know that a consent decree that was in place to forbid the Republican National Committee from bullying people and setting misinformation on election day at the polls, that was in place in 1983. It was lifted in, I think, 2017. That allows now what we say, we've heard a lot of talk about you know, people going to the polls to make sure there's no fraud. So you could see intimidation at the polls. Um, you could see long lines. You can see, you know, misinformation online. Oh, there's a COVID outbreak at this precinct. So the Russians put that someplace so people don't go. I mean, there's all kinds of shenanigans that can happen. But assume we see the landslide, right? We will have a substantial number of ballots that are cast by mail and counted, whether they're counted before the election, some states do it on a rolling basis. You now have President Trump setting it up to say all of those are in, in invalid, except maybe Florida. He's he's given us Florida yeah. so far. <laughs> so then we're saying so the the position would be anybody as outside of Florida or maybe the five states that we've heard we know that have done mail-in balloting for exclusively very well and they're good at it. He says it's all a fraud. Then where are we? Okay, we have the public opinion. Half of the country, a big part of the country, believing this um, and wanting an answer, and then you have we ha we have Republican legislatures rallying around potentially making that a reality by virtue of the delays in voting. And then I also think we have then you've got one side or the other really upset. You have say you know it's really clear the landslide is for Biden, but then you have Trump supporters believing it's a fraud, and you have them riding in the streets. One of my biggest concerns, and I've written about this with what happened at Lafayette Square and Portland, was federal law enforcement officials not identifying themselves. Um, there are international standards requiring it that there's no federal law. Uh, D.C. requires it for their local police. But I concerns me we will see copycat vigilantes in their rioting gear, and people don't know, is this, is this person answering to Bill Barr or not? Like, that was... We don't know. That was set as the new standard. So, or we could see Trump declaring the election for himself. We could see Republican states passing laws to give the election to Trump. And then you see, you know, people that maybe came out for Black Lives Matter or Democrats or people that just don't want Trump anymore, they come out and riot. And then what do we see? We see Trump then enlisting the federal law enforcement apparatus to tamp that down. He doesn't have enough. It's not big enough to deal with a national concern, then you would might have, okay, does the military come in? We saw military, we saw that martial law under President Lincoln. So far, the military hasn't gone with Trump. They've been independent. But when you're in that gray area, who's really in charge? Who are the military leaders going to actually answer to? Hey, Kim, 
Kim, why stop there? Um, as long as we're into nightmare scenarios, we've all been rightly focused on whether Trump would accept the results in the, uh, of the election and leave. If one of these nightmare scenarios uh, plays out and Republican legislatures award the uh, election to Trump, the Biden folks challenge, it goes to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court upholds the, uh, the Trump victory. You know, California, Washington, Oregon secede from the union. I mean, I mean, come on, there's endless ways that there could be serious unrest as a result of this election. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, and I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I mean, some of us have been saying this for for several years now, which is that American democracy could fall in our lifetime. And the notion that it's somehow set in stone in our birthright and something we can just take for granted, I think is very naive. And my view is that democracy itself is on the ballot in November. It needs to be someone other than Trump, because I think former years of Trump, what we've seen with IGs, what we've seen with the politicization's Justice Department, what we've seen with impeachment failing, I just think we are going to see something that's not democracy by the people under Trump four more years with a compliant uh, Republican Senate. So we don't have a lot more time, and I'm about to ask you a big question. Uh, but but <laughs> Does it get any bigger than a new civil well, war? <laughs> well, yeah, which is, I mean, how did, what is your theory of the case in terms of how we really got here? How much of this is Trump? How much of this is Trump, you know, taking advantage of how our culture has changed politically, people's loss of faith in institutions, including, you know, the pillar of our democracy, which is, you know, free and fair elections? How did we get to this point? Oh, there's so many answers to that. But I mean, as far as voting, we have an opt-in system, right? Only white male landowners could vote originally. We don't have automatic voter registration. We should have that. We should all be automatically in and it'd be hard to get out. So we don't have a culture in this country of voting being like paying your taxes or getting your kids their their immunizations. It need that's a cultural shift. The other big piece I think and this is, you know, hackneyed, but I do think it has to do with polarization and I say that from having taught students now since 2006 and their view that the way to get what you want is to go to your camp and hang on to that point of view and glom onto your team. And when I teach in a way where you get curious about the other side's point of view, I taught a class called Democracy at Risk at American University uh, Law School this past semester. And one of the students at the end of the semester said, I've always thought compromises for losers and weak Mm. people. So, So, and there are a lot of reasons for the polarization. Of course, Putin understands this, that the way to destroy democracies from inside out, not by invading at the borders. The framers understood this, which is why we don't have a direct democracy where you just count up votes. We have a representative democracy because they understood that lies spread very quickly and people make decisions in a populist way that are antithetical to their best interests. And I think all of this has been exacerbated by the digital age, which across the law, across the Constitution, has just outpaced regulatory norms. The law has not kept up with all of this information that people just can't process and they don't know how to dis- to make distinctions between facts and fiction because the people that are putting stuff on there that's not that's not accurate are really good at it. So I think we have this polarized uh, and I should say the last piece we have this polarized society and we have a crisis of constitutional literacy. Only a third of Americans, according to the Annenberg Center over the past 10 years in Philadelphia, only a third can name all three branches of government, legislative, judicial, and executive. You know, a, a study in 2015 of recent college grads, 10% thought Judge Judy was on the United States Supreme Court. So so if we have this 
you know, I think people in Lincoln's time, they could probably, a lot of people could, could you know, recite the Emancipation Proclamation. They knew what was in the Constitution. They, they had a real stake in their, in their government. It was kind of community-based, and we've lost that. Um, so if people don't understand the rules of the game, it's really hard to expect them to go out there and enforce it, enforce those rules, um, which is why, you know, I don't want to be all gloom and doom. I think education's number one, so I appreciate the ability to talk about these things. That's absolutely number one, basic civic education. And number two is I just think people will get worried enough to to go through sleet and snow uh, to, to or whatever it takes. And I'll say it for you, Kim, so that you don't have to say it, which is why everybody needs to go out and buy what you need to know about voting and why. Well, right. okay. and, and while you're at it, how to read the Constitution. There you and, go. <laughs> uh, you know, Kim, we on this podcast like to have uplifting shows that cheer people up in the time of COVID. You have delivered to the T uh, with your uh, multiple nightmare scenarios for the dissolution of our democracy. So I want to thank you for coming on and we want to have you again as this election proceeds. Fabulous. And then I'll come on and to talk about happy talk when we're in a different phase. Yeah, we didn't even get into, you know, Bill Barr's role in all this. Well, yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it's another show. No, no, we don't have any more time. We got enough. We got enough. All right. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Thanks Kim. Thanks to presidents of NARAL, Pro-Choice America, Elise Hogue, and law professor and author Kim Whaley for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Pod. We'll talk to you soon.